The word multimedia is the use of a variety of artistic or communicative media using more than one medium of expression or communication. Café is a type of establishment that serves coffee and is known as a place where information can be exchanged. The following is the audio version of the Multimedia Café. Welcome to the Multimedia Café. My name is Jason Spees. Thank you folks for pulling up a stool and joining the conversation right here at the Multimedia Cafe, a place where you never know who you're going to run into or what we're going to talk about. We've got a fantastic program in store for you today. We're going to talk with the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Terry Edom, about the new documentary, Planet of the Humans, Michael Moore's new documentary, about the anti-fossil fuel movement and how that's being, oh, what's the word, um, profitized, perhaps? I don't know, propagandized? I'm not really sure. There's a lot of different words to describe it. So we're going to bring the author of The End of the Fossil Fuels Insanity and the writer at the BOE Report and Public Energy Number 1, Terry Edom, to the program. Mr. Terry Edom, in fact, let's get to the interview right now. Good morning. This is Terry Edom, the author of The End of Fossil Fuel Insanity and writer at the BOE Report. And also the blogger at... Yeah, and the blogger at Public Energy Number One. All right, our international ink Sorry, slinger I'm not here. Yet. What's that? Sorry, I'm not awake yet. No, that's okay. Uh, you know, well, you know, we're going across the international time zone, so you know, we can always <laughs> blame that. I guess it seems pretty that easy. Things. Yeah, I, I like to call you my international energy ink slinger because you're kind of an old school yeah, writer. Yeah. <laughs> Even though you do a lot of the modern day writing, but still, at the end of the day, it's writing. Right. So. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not all Twitter. Your book is available at Amazon.com. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Uh, any other place? Uh, imagine your website. Yeah, it's Barnes and Noble, oh. and uh, I think there's a link on my website as well. Yeah. Okay. All right. End of the fossil it's fuel big, insanity. Big so that's kind of one of the. That's one of the things I wanted to talk about today was the new Michael Moore documentary that came out that, honest, honestly, it shocked me um, to see the Absolutely. direction that it took. And even when I read some of the interviews with the director of it, I was, I was, I was very impressed with how it was handled. Are you familiar with the new documentary, Planet of the Humans? Uh, a little bit. I've, I've just read some news articles. I haven't seen it yet. Um, but, but it struck me exactly like you, and I just was, uh, he's done a lot of things in the past, some of them are controversial, and some of them are clearly anti-business, but I have to admit that I salute the guy for taking on this topic and then honestly reporting on what he found, that it's not all it's cracked up to be, renewable energy. I, I look at this as a pretty big uh, milestone in terms of, the, I guess, moving the pendulum the other way. Do you know what I mean by that? And I agree too. It's because there's we have these discussions a lot in the energy business up here in Canada. But I talk to people in the states too, and there's there's a lot of frustration in the petroleum sector, particularly. We can say anything we want, and people aren't going to listen. As soon as they hear you're from the petroleum industry, they go, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, you're big oil, or you're self-serving, or you're just in it for a buck, or whatever." And and so you you can't 
you can't challenge anything about uh, solar or wind or anything because you just or you're automatically labeled. And even though we're not even talking about necessarily pro petroleum in a sense, we're just saying, look, this stuff just doesn't work on the scale that you've been uh, led to believe it will. And so we get tuned out. But when you have somebody from the other side who's a left winger, avowedly so, anti-capitalist in some sense, not a fan of big business, and he comes up and goes, "Wait a minute, this is all a load of crap." Then, then it's. Uh, I think that's going to strike. He, he's going to get to a, a far bigger audience with that message than, than petroleum realists ever will. How much of the emotion do you think is going to outweigh? the facts that are going to come out of Planet of the Humans. And, and for those people not familiar with what we're talking about, Michael Moore uh, from Fahrenheit 9-11, uh, Sicko, uh, what was the other one he did? Bowling for Columbine. Bowling for Columbine. He's, he's been, I would say, notoriously or at least been labeled as a liberal. Is that is that fair to say? That's totally fair, I would say, at least a liberal, yeah. So with coming out with Planet of the Humans, it really kind of shocked everybody, uh, including the director. Like, like I said, the, the quotes from the yeah. director were they were they went in with a different mindset. They went in with a mindset they were going to expose something different. In the end, they allowed the journalistic integrity to, to come through, in my opinion, to where they basically are reporting – what we've been saying and you've been saying for a number of years, which is this green movement isn't so green and it's not all that it's cracked up to be. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors behind this. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's what gave it the credibility. Is like you said, they came in firm believers in it. And then, as I think in one article or interview I read with the producer, he said, we're kind of crushed to realize that this wasn't true at all. And in turn, they went to the strongest environmentalists who were proponents of this and pushing it and, and, and shaping government policy and they challenged them on it and, and said is this real and they and they couldn't get adequate responses and so they, they came back and circled back and did their analysis on that <clears throat> on that basis that uh, that this, this just isn't real and the proponents aren't able to stand up and explain to us how it is real and and it, it was it's the the tone that came through was almost like crushing disappointment like you said um, but it was honest of them, and and I full 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 credit to them for for doing that. I suspect that there will be another angle that pops up out of it because they allude to the article. Like I said, I haven't seen it yet, but they just say that there's a just a bunch of big business behind the renewable industry, which they don't like big business, um, and that's kind of neither here nor there. And, and they might be right about that. And um, but I think the, the the key point that's valuable in moving the the uh, needle on this discussion is that we need to rethink this whole strategy because it's horribly expensive. And if, if it's not going to work, which I don't believe and you don't believe, and now Michael Moore doesn't believe, then we need to rethink this before we sink trillions of dollars like these Green New Deal people want to do into it. It's, that's an interesting slice there as far as focusing on the big, big business side of it as opposed to the actual facts of the uh, renewable footprint and the and the renewable coexistence that's needed with fossil fuels. Um, that's the one thing that I took away from it, and I didn't even take the big business aspect out, out of it, but I think you're right. I think that is going to be where the initial finger pointing of, of distraction and direction is going to be so that the um, elimination of fossil fuels discussion can continue. Um, what, what, what do you make of that statement? I, I think that's true. 
do I think people aren't going to let that go. Um, there's too many vested interests that have too many. These guys like uh, Bill McKibben that, that he mentioned in his article, like the, the founder of 350.org and people like that, they're never going to backtrack on anything. They're, they're, whole, they're wholly invested in this. So they're going to come up with a way to, um, to, to keep their message alive. Um, that's a dangerous that's angle, by the way. Um, uh, going after the big business angle is very dangerous because big business can easily just start up a bunch of little startups. And all of a sudden now, yeah. Yeah, well, it's true. I mean, that's, they do it in America all the time. Yeah. I don't know about in Canada, but yeah. big business will go start up yeah, a oh, bunch yeah, of little do. startups, let those little, you know, lab mice go and do their thing and then just gobble them up or absorb them or decide to, yeah. to take over when, when the yeah. time, you know, when, when the heat goes down a little bit. That's been going on for, you know, yeah. at least 50 years. It, it, no, no, that's that's not uncommon up here either. So, another angle of the the business aspect of it, the, the big business. If they're challenging renewables and saying it's just a bunch of big businesses, I think I have to see the documentary. But people have to start analyzing too. If there are big solar businesses or big whatever businesses, and that's what he's referring to, are um, are they to what extent are they only alive because of government subsidies? Like what 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 kind of an industry would there be with, if the government had bankrolled everything, um, or even electric vehicles? You look at them; the sales of electric vehicles plummet when governments pull pull away their subsidies. Mr. Terry Edom, I'm going to ask you to hold that thought for just a moment or two. We're going to take a brief pause. We come back. We'll continue the conversation with Terry Edom, the author of The End of the Fossil Fuel Insanity, and a writer at the BOE Report and Public Energy Number One. My name is Jason Spies. This is the Multimedia Cafe. Historic, the first full conversion refinery to be built in the U.S. in over 40 years. Innovative, the cleanest, most technologically advanced downstream project ever. The model for future shale basin projects, groundbreaking, with construction resuming in early 2019. The Davis Refinery. Jason Spies, the most trusted voice in the Bakken. Let's bring in Jason Spies, who is a multimedia journalist in North Dakota. Jason, what's your thought on this? My dad always listens to Jason Spies. No one does an interview like Jason Spies. Jason Spies is the most trusted voice in the Bakken. Love listening to Jason Spies on the radio, and if I miss him there, I catch him online. You know, I don't know what justifies being placed in history books, Jason, but in my book, it's in there. (laughs) This is a good thing. Is your boss watching this? You need a raise. Welcome back to the Multimedia Cafe. My name is Jason Spies. Thank you, folks, for pulling up a stool and joining the conversation right here at the Multimedia Cafe, a place where you never know who you're going to run into or what we're going to talk about. Coming up next, we continue the conversation with Terry Edom, the author of The End of the Fossil Fuel Insanity and a writer at the BOE Report and Public Energy Number 1. Um, or even electric vehicles, you look at them, the sales of electric vehicles plummet when governments pull, us, pull away their subsidies. That's happened in Denmark and uh, it's happening in China as we speak. They have electric vehicle subsidies to, to get people to buy them and sales are going up and everybody's, yeah, look at the conversion. 
then they pull the subsidies back and sales plummet and then everybody goes silent. So there, there's and even like the solar industry in the U.S., it's, it's gotten, and I know they did that to try and get it off the ground, but at some point they have to be sustainable businesses themselves. And I don't think we've seen any evidence that they are. So, so uh, th- that business aspect of it isn't that pure on that side either. So, How about when it comes to some of the footprint Let's, let's talk a little bit about some myths and um, that sort of thing, because your book, End of the Fossil Fuel Insanity, really talked about a lot of these, these different things. I would imagine, at least maybe not specifically, but in terms of the themes uh, that this mm-hmm. Michael, Michael Moore documentary, Planet of the Humans, is talking about. Uh, talk to me about some of the, I guess, myths and, and solar and wind that you would describe uh, to the average person to say, hey, listen, this isn't what it's cracked up to be. Well, yeah, I think there is a lot of overlap. And I think that, like, it's very easy for people to be sold uh, the idea that um, solar is is good, free energy. And you put up some solar panels and you, and you power your house. And, and people are very quick to point that out. Oh, I went solar and I have no solar bill or no power bill. and that, but, but there's a lot of smoke and mirrors behind that because that... The, the more solar that gets added to the problem and at a higher level, and this could be what he found too, the more solar that gets added to the to the network, in, in essence, creates a much bigger problem for the rest of the industry because you keep exacerbating this glut at the wrong time of day. So, so let's say you covered half the U.S. in solar panels and you would have this phenomenal glut of power in the middle of the day, which isn't when, when power is needed. So you would have a glut of power in the system you would force all of the other um, uh, regular providers, the natural gas, the coal, the nuclears, to dial back their power because you give preferential treatment to solar, and then that demolishes that other side of the industry. But you need that other side of the industry for when the sun isn't shining. And, and people don't make that connection that more solar creates bigger problems for the other 20 hours of the day when solar isn't uh, pitching in. What powers things over the uh, dinner hour in the evening that's when the power peak is a lot of times uh, of the year and but solar doesn't help so if you're relying on solar then you're destabilizing the rest of the system and and that's just uh there's these second and third order consequences that people get sold the obvious that oh you put up solar and everything's great but you're creating this massive problem on the other side that people just it, it's really hard for people to see that it's, it's the same thing in, that's happened in california like the wildfires, those devastating wildfires that were blamed so much on climate change. If you analyze what's happened behind the scenes there, and Michael Schellenberg, this guy who's a former uh, extreme environmentalist, pro-solar, pro-renewable guy, he's exposing this stuff too, is that these uh, solar and wind installations get preferential power treatment, or power pricing, so so they proliferate, like in California, the PG&Es of the world who provide the baseload power when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing, they're suffering because their returns have been cut because they don't get as much revenue because they're, they're left with the dregs. They, they provide power or, or they, their power prices go negative sometimes. When there's too much solar power, uh, California power prices go negative. So PG&E would get a bill for producing power. That all impacts their bottom line and it impacts their ability to maintain their electrical grid. And the the cause of those fires in California was sagging power lines, which were under-maintained, which were uh, bumping into brush, which had not been cleared properly. So those are two cost-cutting measures. 
and and that's what caused the the, the fires. So that's like a, a consequence of promoting over promoting solar and wind is that their electrical grid gets under maintained, and then you have these things that happen. But people were quick to blame fossil fuels for those forest fires, but it's the exact opposite. It's renewables that were as much to blame as anything, or more so. How about, when it, that, how about when it comes to wind? We've made the argument on this program, you know, and we're not joking that farmers 100 years ago were more efficient with wind energy by extracting water out of the ground and powering their barn or their pole barn. Ships mm-hmm. during the May, Mayflower time were more efficient with wind energy, using wind as a sail to power mm-hmm. over to America. Um, mm-hmm. Michael Moore talked about the wind footprint a little bit. You're up in Canada. You've got some different rules when it comes to wind energy. I've heard everything from, you know, the amount of eagles that are uh, killed every year by wind turbines to yeah. the amount of forests that are being ripped up, acres and acres, etc., to the actual construction materials yeah. and let alone the distribution uh-huh. of it. Uh, what did your book and, you know, your research and your writing and everything talk to me about the some of those issues and challenges and myths when it comes to wind energy? Uh, well, that's the biggest problem, too. I think so wind has an extremely useful function in a localized basis, like you say, maybe when farmers were doing it to pump water and to, to feed at livestock or something or, or to run a mill of some kind. And localized, it's fine, but it's this notion that you can force it into the grid on large scale and solve the problems. I mean, it's, it's, it's too intermittent to solve the problems of a baseload uh, power demand that fluctuates and doesn't meet wind, and you, you can't store it. So, uh, there, the, the the whole footprint thing too is it's it's we we just been pushed this narrative for so long that we accept that it's okay. Uh, there is some pushback, like uh, counties in California, which are banning new developments. And I also heard something. I went to Palm Springs uh, this past winter, and I heard something fascinating by some people from some people who live there. You can go on tours of the big. Uh, wind farms right around Palm Springs, they're huge. A lot of them are, are not moving, they're stationary when you drive by. And someone down there explained it to me that the the government was in such a rush to promote uh, wind power that they would grant licenses to, to put these new solar farms up um, one after the other after the other. And as the new technology uh, wind turbines change, they would put up a new uh, development and they would just kind of abandon the old ones. So now there's a whole bunch of dead uh, wind turbines that are sitting there. Now they're turning into an abandonment issue because they're they're obsolete. Nobody wants to use them anymore, but they never put into the contract what would happen at the end of the life of these things. So now they're turning into a head an environmental headache of their own. These old things. When when, when so was this? It, it, this is uh, just this past spring. So okay, I used to give do, I used to give that ex- I used to give that example all the time. That uh, and this was five years ago, seven years ago, the last time I checked. But the, the energy, wind, and wind energy, as far as I know, they don't have a good reclamation program that these wind turbines, it's up to the landowner. And so what's going to happen mm-hmm. when you drive by one of those barns that are so dilapidated that looks like if a leaf falls on it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to destroy itself. They're just waiting for the collapse. So I guess they can get the insurance money or something. I don't know. But that my understanding is that it's the same type of reclamation program, which is time will just wither it away. To the mountain, eventually we're down. Well, yeah, because it's, <laughs> if that's the case in California, then they certainly don't have you know a removal program in place if they're just going to leave those up there. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't. Nobody thought of that. They just went ahead full full speed. 
There's one other aspect you mentioned is the footprint of these things. Yeah. So I, I work for a, a little company that produces natural gas up here, and we were um, looking at uh, possibly generating some power uh, from on some of our natural gas sites. And we thought, why, why don't we investigate solar? We'll see what we could do. Maybe we could have like um, a solar installation and t- have a connection to the grid. When the sun is shining, we would sell power into the grid from the solar. And when the sun stopped shining, we would flow the natural gas to the uh, electrical generators and, and sell the same amount of power so we could have a steady load of power going into the grid. Mr. Terry Edom, I'm going to ask you to hold that thought for just a moment or two. We're going to take a brief pause. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Terry Edom, the author of The End of the Fossil Fuel Insanity and a writer at the BOE Report and Public Energy Number 1. My name is Jason Spies. This is the Multimedia Cafe. Jason Spies, the most trusted voice in the Bakken. I totally agree with you, and the word that you brought into this is fact. You tell the facts, and then you let people make up their own minds. If you want someone who's competent, you don't want to get a bunch of rookies. Love listening to Jason Spies on the radio, and if I miss him there, I catch him online. Let's bring in Jason Spies, who is a multimedia journalist in North Dakota. Um, Jason, what's your thought on this? No one does an interview like Jason Spies. Historic, the first full conversion refinery to be built in the U.S. in over 40 years. Innovative, the cleanest, most technologically advanced downstream project ever. The model for future shale basin projects, groundbreaking, with construction resuming in early 2019. The Davis Refinery. So here's to all of the good thinkers and here's to the lonely drinker but don't you know welcome back to the multimedia cafe my name is jason spies thank you folks for pulling up a stool and joining the conversation right here at the multimedia cafe a place where you never know who you're going to run into or what we're going to talk about coming up next we continue the conversation with terry edom the author of the end of the fossil fuel insanity and a writer at the BOE Report and Public Energy Number 1. Electrical generators and, and sell the same amount of power so we could have a steady load of power going into the grid. And so we started looking at to do like a, a megawatt of power or something like that, or five megawatts, I think it was, and it, we, which we would have enough gas from a couple of wells to do this without any difficulty. Um, and then we, we, we looked at what it would take to to do that program, a mixed solar and natural gas, we would have had to put up 60 acres of solar panels to do this, or we could just take the natural gas that's flowing out of these wells. They're like flat producers. They've been around forever. Take that natural gas, generate power, and if we re-ingested the CO2 from the exhaust, which isn't that difficult technically at all, we would have uh, the, the same or less emissions than having the solar installation, but we would take up 60 acres less the solar thing would have taken up a 60-acre bigger footprint. So it just made zero sense to even go down that solar path um, when we have natural gas to do it. It it just makes zero sense, and it takes like a a fraction of the footprint to do it. But people are still jumped to the solar because they get whatever credits for it or or some uh, feel-good or some grant from somewhere for putting up a solar farm. And it's just 
illogical, but we, we just keep heading down this path. So, like getting back to the Michael Moore thing again, if, like I said, I can't wait to see it, but if he's starting to point out some of these inconsistencies as well, well that's just, we need to hear that before we keep losing our mind like we are. I do wonder how it's going to be received if they're going to take you know it into consideration or they're just going to overlook it and still continue with their their narrative because a lot of these a lot of these environmentalists um well i was i was a two-part question here because i was going to ask you about the modern day environmentalist but before i guess i get into that i i i was going to say that a lot of environmentalists that's their job now they're actually paid to be over the top passionate i mean that's that's their profession is to do that but they but they don't agree and, and it, they don't represent themselves that way. Does that make sense? It, it does. Is that, is that the second part of your question? <laughs> no. Uh, well, yeah. I yeah. mean, I, I guess the two part question is, you know, the modern day environmentalist. I think they've changed since you know, and, and we've talked about it before. But just kind of you know your your synopsis, if you will, of the modern day environmentalist. But the the second part of it is, is that, you know, there are environmentalists that it is their full time job and they treat it a lot like a political, um, a, a political rally yeah. or a political uh, uh, campaign, because what they end up doing is they use the environment in order to leverage people's energy and, and they, they get people to donate their time and energy for free. And the people, I, they don't think that this person's getting paid as their job. I mean, it's not. I mean, they'd, if it was a propane salesman or an oil and gas salesman, they'd certainly look at that person different. But because they're representing Absolutely. the environmentalists, they don't look at it that way. It's almost like when, you know, a teacher or a cop or a service person is presented in front of you. I mean, you've been programmed since you were a kid how to think of them. And it's a lot like that. Is that okay? I, there we go. There. It's a very framed question, but it's not trying to be. It's trying to say, "Hey, listen. This is the way that social engineering has worked, and now it almost seems like it's contradicting itself." So that's the question. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I agree completely. And it's uh, there's I, I I still remember some old school um, shows or, or publications. I can, I come from a farming background, and I remember there's this. Uh, show that you, or there's a couple of things that were of interest. There's a, a publication that used to be called Mother Earth News, which I think is still out there. I think it has a website and stuff like that. There's a show that's on PBS. We get uh, PBS up here in Canada. Uh, has some good shows on it. There's, there's a show on there called Growing a Greener Earth. They've been around forever, these things. And these are true environmentalists. And you watch them and they're passionate and they like growing vegetables. So they always have. They, they, were, they were composting 30 years ago. They were driving small fuel efficient cars. They're, they're really, really interested in, in keeping their, their environmental footprint down. So that's like true environmentalism. And that's a, that's a, a noble uh, movement. And it's great. And, 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 and I always liked watching those shows because those people, efficiency is just good. If you can do something um, that's less harmful to the environment, then you should do something that's less harmful to the environment. But like you said, this industry has sprung up where uh, it's like a Trojan horse almost. These political people have come in under that umbrella in, as a means to engineer society to their liking, and, they, and they've, they've done it. They've painted themselves green and said, oh, yeah, we're just like the, the Mother Earth news guy. We're, we're just like him, except that we want to uh, change the way you live and the way everybody else lives, and we want to uh, socially re-engineer everything. But we're, we're green, so what we're saying is right. And so it, it has become a profession. And so I think the there's there's, there's still as true environmentalists out there. You can watch some of these 
cable news shows or whatever, and, and these people that are living that way off the land, they've always been there. It's a subset of population, and they always will. And they're they're true environmentalists, but there's the people that out there that that don't don't they don't work to advance those things. They work to destroy other things. They want to destroy our way of living. They want to they want to destroy industries. They want to um, and and whether at one time they thought that was for the good, or now they just do it because that's their business. I think that line's been blurred for a lot of people too. So I think that I think there will be a, a set of that environmentalist movement. That no matter how how correct and how well stated Michael Moore's argument is, they simply will tune it out and try and discredit it because that's their business. It'd be like they they like Bill McKibben, who's got now he's a he lives on the earth too, so he he at least lives it a little bit. He grows his own vegetables and stuff like that, but he wants everybody else to stop flying too. He's trying to destroy our standard of living. That's his goal. Um, which I don't think is fair to anybody, and uh, it's certainly not something that should be allowed to have someone dictate something like that. But but um, those people that have become so entrenched in making a living off of the political politicalization of the environment, I I don't think they will they will budge an inch. I don't either, and I find it rather ironic that there are uh, the amount of resources that are have gone into environmentalism to where they've actually created the very industrialized uh, company which does more harm to the earth than it does good and at the same time they're not even showcasing the, you know the the people living off the land that are being very eco-friendly they're they're just finger pointing they're not trying you know what i mean so it's it's like yeah. a it's like a double-edged sword there i mean at least you know some people that have like the earth, mother earth network or whatever they're trying to promote that, hey, we're using our resources to, to share the knowledge the best we can versus we're using our resources to uh, finger point and just, you know, That's right. polarize, if you will, and, and just do that sort of yep. thing. I never thought of it from that angle, but I, I do know that um, there there is a number of people that has joined that movement that the modern day environmentalist is causing more harm to the planet than mm-hmm. than good because the cell phone the reality of the cell phone is that that's the number one polluter on the planet between the uh distribution the manufacturing and you know everybody needs a new one every one or two years so that's part of it too and then you've got the rare earth minerals and then of course you got the data centers and that's the actually the most um pollution filled part of the cell phone is the data centers i mean so when you think about that three-headed polluter uh, attack that the cell phone has. And the irony here, and I don't know if irony is the right word, but but the humor, I guess, that I see is that if you walk up to somebody and say, will you live without your cell phone for 30 days? And they'll say, absolutely not. And if you say, will you live without oil and gas for 30 days? They'll say, sure. I mean, you can't make it up. <laughs> So talk to me about what, what, what you know about cell phones as a polluter and your thoughts on if people would actually choose cell phones over oil and gas in terms of having a world well, without. <laughs> you get my yeah, humor I, there, though. I, I, I do, and, and there's a couple of angles to that that I've, I've been thinking about lately or uh, researching. Um, 
Mr. Terry Edom, I'm going to ask you to hold that thought for just a moment or two. We're going to take a brief pause. We come back, we'll continue the conversation with Terry Edom, the author of The End of the Fossil Fuel Insanity and a writer at the BOE Report and Public Energy Number 1. My name is Jason Spies. This is the Multimedia Cafe. Moment pass. Jason Spies, the most trusted voice in the Bakken. I totally agree with you, and the word that you brought into this is fact. You tell the facts, and then you let people make up their own minds. If you want someone who's competent, you don't want to get a bunch of rookies. Love listening to Jason Spies on the radio. And if I miss him there, I catch him online. Let's bring in Jason Spies, who is a multimedia journalist in North Dakota. Um, Jason, what's your thought on this? No one does an interview like Jason Spies. Historic. The first full conversion refinery to be built in the U.S. in over 40 years. Innovative. The cleanest, most technologically advanced downstream project ever. The model for future shale basin projects. Groundbreaking with construction resuming in early 2019. The Davis Refinery. Welcome back to the Multimedia Cafe. My name is Jason Spies. Thank you, folks, for pulling up a stool and joining the conversation right here at the Multimedia Cafe, a place where you never know who you're going to run into, or what we're going to talk about. Coming up next, we continue the conversation with Terry Edom, the author of The End of the Fossil Fuel Insanity and a writer at the BOE Report and Public Energy Number 1. I, I do, and, and there's a couple of angles to that that I've, I've been thinking about lately or uh, researching. Um, you're, you're right, a cell phone pulls things from everywhere on Earth, and, and when people look at a cell phone, they shouldn't go, oh, it's small and it only weighs whatever, six ounces, so there's not much to it. But, no, you're pulling... You're pulling rare earths and minerals and metals from every corner of the world, and every one of those has a supply chain. Every one of them has to be discovered, uh, explored for, uh, produced, processed, transported, uh, and there's there's environmental footprint with every one of those minerals, and it's huge, and it's in every corner of the world. So 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 people need to remember that too. That, that, that when when you do something simple, you're pulling on a huge supply chain that is responsible for the world's emissions. And it's the same as when you climb on a plane and you can't say my carbon footprint is the fuel that gets burnt by that plane and I can offset that by doing some good deed. No, the, the, you're, you're part of a chain that's pulling minerals and metals from every corner of the world to make a plane, to make airports, to make runways, to make air traffic control, to make all of this infrastructure that enables air traffic. So it's 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 the the... Uh, you're pulling on the, the thread of a great big ball of twine here, but the, the, the ball of twine is the environmental problem. It's not the little end that you're looking at. And another angle is just the sheer magnitude of, the, of what the world um, uh, is, is embarking on here with the data centers and stuff like that. Like we, we tend to look at it like the U.S. or North America. We know we're very energy intensive. We know we have great communications and stuff. I just happened to be reading about a company that that I like, Brookfield Infrastructure Partners. They're a global kind of company, and they buy infrastructure all over the world. They just announced their second quarter results, and they're getting big into data transmission because it's a it's a growth growth industry globally. 
they, they did a transaction in India where they just acquired off another company 130,000 cell phone towers. And, and that number just boggled my mind. I thought, like India, like you think of India as, as being pretty undeveloped. And, and, and I thought 130,000 cell phone towers in India. And I started digging into it, and that's like a tip of the iceberg. There's something like 900,000 cell phone towers. They are growing at an absolutely phenomenal rate. Their data demands have increased tenfold in the past two years. So, so, so th- this is what happens when you have a country of a billion people or 1.2 billion or whatever. This is just India alone trying to catch up to our standard of living. And their, their data or their infrastructure investment requirements over the next three, four, five years or something like $700 billion. And this is roads and hospitals and the things that we all take for granted, or not even not even all we take for granted, parts of it. We're not even talking about building airports for every city in India. You're talking about putting in basic infrastructure so these people can approach our standard of living. And how are we going to deny them that? How can we say to them, no, you can't have that. You can't have roads. You can't have hospitals because it's going to destroy the planet. You can't do that. And China is the same thing. Between those two countries, you got two and a half billion people trying to get to where we are and, and the, the footprint of that those cell phones those cell towers the, the, the electrical grid that needs to be connected the infrastructure to keep those to feed those people the restaurants they're going to want to go to the leisure that they're going to want to have like we do the the vehicles that they're going to want to drive that, that that is just such a, a massive pull on the world's resources that that's what we need to focus on and that that this is going to happen and even in spite of this china or india is spending a fortune on renewable energy they're going as fast as they can they're putting solar farms they're doing everything else they still project that within the next 30 years i think their coal consumption is going to double so so that that's just a fact of life when you modernize a country like that these little minuscule things we do over here where we're willing to kill off industries just absolutely pale in comparison to what is happening in the rest of the world. So, so do does it make sense for us to be killing off industries here? Should we be killing the golden goose, which is the U.S., which has been for a long time, when it's not going to really make any difference? And people say, well, you have to do your part, and, and that's true, and we are doing our part, and the U.S. is doing their part, Canada is doing their part. We're getting rid of coal-fired power plants. The U.S.'s coal consumption is has dropped and it's being replaced by natural gas. And the U.S. is actually one of the best performing countries as far as reducing emissions recently compared to much of the world. But no, you don't get credit for that, right? Because people don't want to hear that. They, they just want a Green New Deal or something. Um, so so the, getting back to your point about the, the, the web there, like the... The demand that's created by these things like telecommunications is just unbelievably huge, and it's global, and you can't ignore that. That's just it's it's, it's coming. You brought up something that we've tried to hammer home the last I don't know at least five six years that India and China are getting a middle class, and when they uh-huh. get a middle class, they all are getting cell phones, and we're, when they're getting cell phones, they're getting Amazon and Alibaba, which is bigger than Amazon. It's called uh-huh. Alibaba. It's it's the Amazon of China. That means the middle class can start buying things in the palm of their hand, and once you start buying things in the palm of your hand, it's like you said, every purchase has a supply chain. Every single purchase uh-huh. has a. If every time that you buy you buy a reusable straw, 
There is a supply chain behind that. And so if you don't use that reusable straw, then you just did a negative balance on the economy, on the environmental footprint. Sure, you bought one, but you didn't use it. Do you see what I mean? To where pe- people are, um, they, they might be buying, you know, um, things to are good for the environment, but if they're not even actually putting it into application, there's no. It's 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 just a reverse. It's kind of like just standing around, pointing fingers, and texting and trolling, type of a thing. So um, that part of it. I'm pretty sure if it happened in America and it happened in England, it's probably going to happen in China and in India as well, which is complacency. <laughs> Does that make sense? I mean, as, right. as, listen, oh, yeah. I saw yeah. the Olympics in China. I know how disciplined they can be, but I've also seen how uh-huh. lazy a middle-class American can be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and at heart, um, when, when people can afford more, like if you're still subsist, subs, subsistence living in India and you're, working for your food for the next day or something like that and you, you find yourself in a position where you are becoming middle class you don't people are going to enjoy that that's just human nature they're going to go on trips they want to see the world they want to uh, travel around they want to experience new things it doesn't mean they want to, to move into a, a smaller place <laughs> when you're in india right you're not going to say oh i'm happy in my my 60 square foot uh, whatever it is they're, they're, they're going to say, hey, I want to, I want to have a little bit of comfort too. I want to live like everybody else in the world does. It's not, they're, they're, people don't, people don't uh, increase their, their standard of living by going into more and more austerity. That's just not how it works. And that was Terry Edom, the author of The End of the Fossil Fuel Insanity and writer at the BOE Report and Public Energy Number 1. To listen to the full-length interview or to check out other exclusive interviews, visit thecrudelife.com. That's thecrudelife.com. The Multimedia Cafe is part of the Crude Life Media Network. Check us out on Facebook and Twitter. All of those social media links are available at thecrudelife.com. 350,000 followers we have at the Crude Life Social Media Network. We'd love for you to be one, too. That's going to do it for today's program. My name is Jason Spies. This is the Multimedia Cafe. We'll be back tomorrow at this time on this radio station. And for those of you streaming us on the Internet, thank you very much for doing so and choosing us as part of your content. And for those of you downloading our podcasts, you can find them at iHeartRadio or iTunes. Of course, many other podcast locations like our website, thecrudelife.com. From the staff at the Multimedia Cafe, my name is Jason Spies, asking you to savor life and enjoy the spice. Like they did in the good old days Because we're back to the way Oh, where you build the bridge And I'll hammer on the harmony After a hard week's work Will it make Historic, the first full conversion refinery to be built in the U.S. in over 40 years. Innovative, the cleanest, most technologically advanced downstream project ever. The model for future shale basin projects, groundbreaking, with construction resuming in early 2019. The Davis Refinery.
Jason Spies, the most trusted voice in the Bakken. I totally agree with you, and the word that you brought into this is fact. You tell the facts, and then you let people make up their own minds. If you want someone who's competent, you don't want to get a bunch of rookies. Love listening to Jason Spies on the radio, and if I miss him there, I catch him online. Let's bring in Jason Spies, who is a multimedia journalist in North Dakota. Um, Jason, what's your thought on this? No one does an interview like Jason Spies. 